This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show. Unfortunately, what happens is that people conflate sex work and trafficking, and they think that it's one and the same. Also, they don't listen to sex workers. They very much patronize them, and they don't listen to those sex workers who say, you know what, trafficking is bad. The vast majority of us are doing this for a living, and we have very valid reasons for doing it, and it's a choice that we make, and please respect that choice. Welcome to The Tonic. I'm your host, Jamie Busson, and we're here to talk about your health and wellness. Today, we'll learn about thyroid health and endocrine balance. We'll find out about gender and diversity in orthopedic surgery. We'll discuss whether pornography is healthy. And lastly, we'll talk about the top tips for spring cleaning. But first, a little bit of business. Life Choice Professional Therapeutic Medicine was founded in 1986 by Eldon Dahl, a doctorate of natural medicine, in order to provide naturopathic medicines for his patients. Today, Life Choice's commitment remains unchanged, providing completely unique licensed products which distinguish themselves as an effective alternate to allopathic medicine without the side effects. Life Choice remains dedicated to using only the finest USP pharmaceutical grade ingredients and fermented amino acids in therapeutic formulations and produced to the highest quality standards. For more information, visit lifechoice.net. Our first guest is Eldon Dahl, Doctorate of Natural Medicine, Founder and Chief Executive Officer of Life Choice LTD. Eldon graduated as a naturopathic doctor in 1988. His pathway towards natural medicine was a result of witnessing family members struggle with cancer and recognizing that environmental toxins and nutrition correlated with the disease process. Eldon has more than three decades of experience in the naturopathic and natural healing industries. Welcome back to the show, Eldon. How are you? Well, I'm doing fine. Thank you for having me back, Jamie. We're putting you to work this morning, my friend. We're, we're going to have you explain some complicated stuff. Uh, are, you, are you ready to explain the endocrine system? Well, I'll do my best. <laughs> well, that's all we can ask. So what are the main glands of the endocrine system? And if you can give sort of an overview on how they function. Well, the endocrine system is, is quite complex. It runs the entire body. The main glands of the endocrine system is the pituitary gland, which releases growth hormone, uh, which is responsible for growth and development. Then uh, the pineal gland is uh, what we call the third eye, and the pineal gland is where we produce our sleep-wake cycle, our melatonin. It functions on so many levels, the pineal gland. Like a lot of uh, different religions in this nature, find that as the most spiritual gland of the body. And then the hypothalamus gland that works on the absorption of minerals, and minerals that works with your thyroid and the thalamus. And then you have your thyroid gland, and the thyroid and the parathyroid, they both work hand in hand. And they work on, of course, producing the hormones, and there's a whole lot of function, but we'll probably get more into the thyroid later. And then there's the adrenal glands, which produce adrenaline and natural cortisol in the body, and this gives us our energy, our fight and flight. And then the last is the thymus gland, which is responsible for immunity. So it produces T-cells, and this is extremely vital in a time where immunity is so important. Yeah, I agree. So the pituitary gland is often referred to as the master gland. Why is that? Well, the pituitary gland is your communicator. 
it's responsible for so many things within the body. It controls metabolism, your growth hormone, and so the lack of growth hormone is the cause of dwarfism. So it also controls sexual maturity, so then reproduction, and the blood pressure, and it also affects the vital uh, physical functions and the processes of the body. So the pituitary gland is, is the communicator that communicates with all the glands. So you'll, if, if the thyroid is out, the pituitary will send a signal to the thyroid to produce thyroxin. If the adrenals are, are low-functioning, it'll produce and say produce cortisol. And so it's the great communicator within the body, the pituitary gland. Okay, now let's sort of shift gears a bit. There seems to be, at least you know, from my perspective, and I, I think our listeners' perspective too, a prevalence of thyroid disease. Why do you think that is? That's a good question. The main reason I would say, especially in our day and age, is the saturation or the bioaccumulation of environmental toxins. And so these can be broken down to pesticides, herbicides, uh, the elimination of, of the amount of pharmaceutical drugs people take in their body, and they're eliminated into our waterways and our lands, and the amount of antibiotics that are given out, and also radiation toxicity that is being bombarded constantly. And then so when we combine these with the lack of micronutrients within the soil and then our highly processed foods, they create stress within the body, and the, the stress causes imbalance and the body opening up the pathway for the disease process. So the, the thyroid disease is so prevalent today, it affects, I would say, probably 80 to 90 percent of the world's population, and most people don't know it. And it affects women five to eight times greater than men. Hmm. Now, those in the industry know all about sort of your history in bringing thyroid product to market. And we touched upon it, I believe, the last time you were on the show. But, you know, I want to sort of tap into your expertise and talk a little bit about what Life Choice is doing with respect to the thyroid gland product and how it compares to popular prescription drug. Tell me if I'm pronouncing this right, Synthroid. Yeah, Synthroid is, was, I think, from 2016 for the five years following, was the number one drug sold in America, selling 123 million prescriptions per year. So that would be equivalent to one-third of the American population taking Synthroid. Wow. <laughs> it's huge, yeah. And, and Synthroid is a synthetic isolated T4 drug, now mainly consisting of the, the hormone thyroxin. Now T4 is in an inactive state. So what that means is it's not cellular absorbable. So what, what happens is when someone takes the drug, it must first convert into the usable form, which is T3. And when it does that, it loses 80% of its iodine content to be able to convert to T3 within the body before being absorbed to the cells. And there are many, many people, especially those that have autoimmune disorders, that have a genetic predisposition, and they cannot convert the T4 to T3. And yet, it's the drug that most doctors recommend for treating thyroid disorder. Hmm. 
So the product that we produce is, is called thyroidine. And it is uh, a raw, desiccated thyroid gland. It's produced hormone-free. And actually, the hormone replacement therapy has never been the naturopathic way. It has always been the way of pharma, designed to treat the symptom of the disease and not treat the very core of the imbalance. So thyroidine works with the body to bring balance without the side effects. This is really revolutionary because the first time we took it from prescription drug status to bring it into a natural health product so it can be sold over the counter as a therapy for 80% of the population that are suffering from thyroid disorder. Wow, okay. All right, so associated with thyroid disorders are autoimmune disorders. And you know, I think people who are any in any way aware of what's going on in the world will will sort of say, yeah, there, there seems to be a lot of autoimmune disorders sort of proliferating through our population. What's your explanation for that? Is it correlated to the thyroid issue? It's quite complex, but autoimmune disorders, as you have said, they have skyrocketed. There's probably as many as 50 million Americans or 5 million Canadians that suffer from at least one autoimmune illness. And we're, again, like, like women with the thyroid disorder, women for autoimmune disorder bear the brunt. And probably 75% of the sufferers are female. I didn't know that. Okay. And so what, what we really find out is that autoimmune disorders happen when the body is subjected to things that lower our T-cell count within our body. And so when we, our bodies become dependent on something that may be made in the lab rather than what the body could naturally produce. And so what's happened in society has become weak from probably the genetic GMO foods, processed foods, the inactive lifestyle, the lack of natural immunity, and being dependent on what's produced in a lab rather than what's by natural design of the body. And the whole thing with COVID is a whole thing that I could spend the whole program on to discuss COVID. But what it is, is when you take a vaccine and the vaccine can lower your body's ability to produce autoimmunity on its own. So when, what you're going to find is those that are going to have the vaccine, they're going to lower their body's immunity and you're going to see autoimmunity skyrocket. Well, I hope that doesn't happen, but I understand it's certainly a possibility. Let's focus on what happens if you have a low-functioning thyroid, or what's called hypothyroidism. What are the symptoms? Uh, symptoms are just like when you have fatigue, and you're tired, and you get forgetful. And it's associated with the menstrual cycle, so uh, women will have heavy menstrual periods, weight gain is from low-functioning thyroid. You'll have dry skin, coarse hair, hair falling out. Some will develop a, a hoarse voice. And then one of the main things that most people identify with is the cold extremities, so cold hands, mm -hmm. cold feet are attributed to hypothyroidism. And I think anyone that's married and sleeps with their wife in the bed, they'll know in wintertime <laughs> yeah. that's true. Yeah. No, we're definitely on different thermostats, that's for sure. <laughs> Conversely, hyperthyroidism, which would be the other end of the spectrum, you would expect, I guess, opposite symptomology. Is that true, though? 
Well, it's almost like a, a reverse mirror effect because what it is is your body in low functioning, your body isn't producing an, enough natural cortisol. And so you're, it's just pumping out adrenaline, 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 and then that stresses your body. And then with hyperthyroidism, you're just on like the roadrunner, beep, beep, you're just running all the time. And so you have irritability, you have nervousness, your muscle weakness, and you get tremors and shakes. And then it's the opposite to the menstrual cycles for low functioning. You'll have infrequent, scant menstrual periods. You'll have weight loss because your body is constantly burning and you're just hyperactive. You have sleep disturbances and large thyroid gland, the goiters. Some even develop eye problems and irritation. And then they are sensitive to heat, so they are just always hot and hot flushed. And so this is the hyper. So it's the, it's the opposite to the low functioning because these are high functioning. Okay. Now, there's a phrase that's getting thrown out there quite a bit, and and I'm sure some of our listeners have heard it before, and I want to sort of dissect it a bit, if that's okay. And that's adrenal fatigue. So what is it, and in your mind, what causes it to happen? Well, adrenal fatigue is, uh, I know the doctors kind of don't don't believe in adrenal fatigue. They say it's all in your mind, or you just, because you're of such and such an age, and they downplay it. But it is, in a nutshell, the adrenal glands produce cortisol. And cortisol is really life-sustaining. It's our adrenal hormones that's essential for homeostasis within the body. So it brings balance to the body and brings a state of total functioning. And so with adrenal fatigue, the body can't keep up with the demand because it's now the adrenals are really now starting to push when they're low functioning. They start producing adrenaline, which is the stress hormone. So they just keep pumping out adrenaline, 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 and they start to lower your body's function of naturally occurring of cortisol. And so most people are unaware that the stress levels lowers your immune system because the adrenal glands have the greatest concentration of vitamin C in the body. Hmm. And since since vitamin C is water-soluble, as soon as your stress levels come and all your vitamin C drain from your body, so the more the body starts pumping out adrenaline, it depletes the vitamin C reserves, which lowers your body's immunity. And so, so this is the thing when the thyroid gland requires the cortisol to remain in balance. And this is why it's, it's extremely important to take adrenal gland. And then I, I recommend taking the adrenal gland with the thyroidine. And then they work synergistically. One, the adrenals help to raise the natural cortisol and bring it into a state of balance. And then it helps to supplement when the pituitary is saying to the thyroid, hey, produce thyroxin. And the thyroid is signaling down the adrenal gland, I need cortisol and then it keeps pumping out the adrenaline so this is where it comes into play when it brings the state of balance to the body to the point of being coming balanced rather than being drained well that is incredibly interesting eldon is there information on your website that sort of gets into a little bit more detail what we just discussed well i i do have videos that i produce short videos on the youtube lifechoice.net or job.net i think it is or lifechoice.net uh, videos and I think we have a very thorough 
education process on our website at lifechoice.net. We go into detail on everything there, the videos and the explanation. I try to make it very user-friendly so that people can get as much information on how to treat their body without being dependent on pharmaceutical drugs. Fantastic. We'll put those links up on the website. Thank you so much for coming on the show today. Well, thank you, Jamie. It was my pleasure. That was Eldon Dahl. We have to take a short break, but when we return, we'll discuss gender and diversity in orthopedic surgery on The Tonic. Life Choice Professional Therapeutic Medicine was founded in 1986 by Eldon Dahl, a doctorate of natural medicine, in order to provide naturopathic medicines for his patients. Today, Life Choice's commitment remains unchanged, providing completely unique licensed products which distinguish themselves as an effective alternate to allopathic medicine without the side effects. Life Choice remains dedicated to using only the finest USP pharmaceutical grade ingredients and fermented amino acids in therapeutic formulations and produced to the highest quality standards. For more information, visit lifechoice.net. Valentine's Day isn't the only time to think about your heart. Over 2.4 million Canadians are affected by heart disease. Symptoms such as shortness of breath, chest pains, discomfort in your arms, back, neck, or jaw are not to be ignored. Seeking medical assistance is always the safest choice. It could save your life. Don't die of doubt. Don't hesitate. Follow your heart and call 911 at the first sign of heart attack or stroke. Medtronic Canada is committed to alleviating pain, restoring health, and extending life for patients with heart disease. The Tonic is brought to you by Purely Natural. Their liquid greens chlorophyll is the only line of soluble, grit-free, and great-tasting greens on the market. Liquid greens can easily be mixed with your favorite drink to provide a sustained natural boost of energy to help you get through your day. There's unflavored, which is great with orange juice. The mint flavor is cool and refreshing. Dark chocolate has all the health benefits of a salad, but with a great chocolate taste. And for that extra detox boost, try activated charcoal and mint. Enjoy the energy, enjoy the detox, enjoy the great taste. Purely natural, liquid greens. This is The Tonic on Zoomer Radio. Dr. Aaron Boynton, or Dr. B, is an orthopedic surgeon with a unique approach to musculoskeletal pain, blending both the art and science of medicine. As the first female orthopedic surgeon to work in the MLB and NHL, she has extensive experience dealing with overuse or wear and tear injuries, and she's become a regular on this show. Welcome back, doctor. How are you? Thank you so much, Jamie. Um, I'm doing great. I'm doing great and really excited to be here today and, and discuss what we're going to discuss. Yeah. Well, I know I know it's an issue that's near and dear to you, and really it should be important for all of us, and that is gender and diversity issues in orthopedic surgery. Yes. It is something that's very near and dear to me, and I'm, I'm grateful for the opportunity to express my views on it with you uh, and uh, our listeners on the, on the show today. You know, I've had uh, such an opportunity over the last year to sit down and reflect on, on this issue, and, and I think the COVID-19 pandemic has really brought it to the forefront in my mind because yep. of the difficulties that women and uh, people of color are experiencing with their job loss and inequities in healthcare. Yeah. And, you know, you might, this topic isn't one that, you know, necessarily comes to the fore of the mind when you're thinking of all the issues that flow, but it actually has huge impacts. And I'm hopeful today that as we go through it, people will come to understand what a real problem it is. So let's start sort of at the beginning, if there is a beginning. How many female orthopedic surgeons are there? 
So in Canada today, there's between 12 and 13 percent of uh, orthopedic surgeons are women. Uh, when I started about 30 years ago, it was 1 percent. Wow. Uh, in 2001, it was about 5.5 percent. So we are very slowly realizing a change. But the operative word here is slow. And do you have any sense of why that is? Like, were you discouraged from going into that specialty? You know, it's funny. 30 years ago, everybody said to me, oh, that's a man's world and that's a man's job. Why are you going into it? And I very naively thought, well, because I love it. You know, it's (laughs) something that (laughs) I'm going to go, I'm going to be an orthopedic surgeon, I'm going to become the best orthopedic surgeon, and I'm going to work really hard, and the gender issues aren't going to touch me. But unfortunately, they did. And really surprisingly, and I think what bothers me is that it's been 30 years and the same problems are still here today that they were 30 years ago. And this is seen by a lack of women in leadership positions within uh, orthopedics, and there's a significant gender pay gap. You may be shocked to know that in Ontario, a female orthopedic surgeon is paid only 57 cents to the dollar that her male orthopedic surgeon colleague will make for the same work. When you told me that, I was flabbergasted and shocked. I I mean, I think these pay equity issues are becoming uh, more noticed. Recently in the Globe and Mail, they were talking about uh, the distinction between partners pay at major law firms. But when you consider that most doctors are paid through the government, it's shocking that women and men are paid differently. Like It's unfathomable to me. Like I I don't get it. Well, when you take a step back, I, I agree with you. But what happens is that the men are in leadership positions. They tend to take the subspecialties where there's higher pay. They don't tend to spend as much time with their patients, so they'll see a higher volume of patients. <laughs> I remember when I first started orthopedics, I asked one of my senior colleagues, like, how many new patients do you see in an afternoon? And he goes, 25. And I'm like, oh, my God, how does he do that? Like, I maybe see eight. And he goes, well, I walk in the room, I look at the x-ray, and I say, you need a hip replacement, go talk to my secretary. And I'm like, okay, well, that's not how I practice medicine. So there's differences in how women and men practice medicine. And then the allocation of OR time, because that's where you really make your money as a surgeon. So until we get more women in leadership positions, uh, in the positions of power to allocate resources, buy equipment, give OR time, uh, and I think have a change in how patients are even referred. There's referral patterns from the family physicians where family doctors tend to refer more surgical cases to the men than to the women. So it's, it's a very complex issue. You know, my experience, I was a commercial litigator for a number of years. And, you know, the women always had difficulty making partner because if they wanted to have kids, you know, there was the time away just to obviously physically have the child. But then obviously, a lot of women want to spend time with their children when they're quite young. And it would they would be set back because they didn't have the same work experience as somebody in their same year of call. They just didn't because they were taking time off to have kids. And it was taboo. No men would take paternity leave. And my view was until men actually took paternity leave, there was no way to sort of bridge that gap. And I don't know whether it's the same in medicine. You're 100% correct. When I actually first started, they didn't have maternity leave. My son was born when I was at UCLA doing my fellowship. And my four weeks of holidays was my maternity leave. And 
it was looked as upon uh, as a vacation. Right. And yeah. Anybody who <laughs> knows that this is not vacation. I right. remember, I, you know, I thought I was going to publish this paper, and I still haven't written the paper 27 years later. But I think that really what it's going to come down to is the leaders within our community understanding and actually not denying that this is an issue, that there are inequities, gender inequities, racial inequities within our workplaces, and our leaders are going to have to step up to the plate and start walking the talk. It's one thing to have a policy. It's one thing to have procedures. But unless you have leaders who are actually practicing equality, and what I mean by that is that people can come into the workplace and they can be themselves and feel valued. Until we achieve that in the workplace there's not going to be a change. You know, you can instill all the rules, but it's actually a cultural issue, right? Like if it's the culture of work hard, play hard and do this and do that, like it's, it's really hard to make those changes. It just is. And I agree with you. Once that happens, I think things will be seen in a different light. Let's sort of switch gears to the patient's perspective. Like why should the patient care and how are they being affected? What's the gender and diversity issues that face patients? Well, it's actually quite significant and disturbing for me as a physician. There's been some studies done in orthopedics uh, which look at patients with arthritis. Mm -hmm. And if we look at women and men over the age of 65, one in four women over the age of 65 will have arthritis compared to one in six men. It takes longer for a woman who has osteoarthritis of the knee to be referred to a specialist And once she's actually referred to a specialist, she's three times less likely to be offered a total joint replacement. So there's perceptions in the world of orthopedics, which is primarily men, with regards to women's pain. You know, some may say, well, she's had a baby, she can handle the pain. Or others actually say, well, women are, they just kind of overblow their pain and it's not really that bad. And this is significant. So I think that diversity is really important in orthopedics because it will bring many different voices to the table, different points of view, so that there can be an improvement in our care for our patients and an understanding of different people and and how they express their pain and, and disability. And I understand there's also sort of a dichotomy between those who are racialized and those who aren't and, and whether they get access to treatment on, on orthopedics, right? It's unfortunate, but that's true. And we don't have the studies, and we're starting these. Within the actual orthopedic surgery profession, there are not a lot of uh, minority, racial minorities. More people are coming into the profession, but one of the biggest problems is that medical students know that it's not necessarily fun, and they're making choices. They're deciding that they don't want to come into our profession because they want to be able to enjoy their life, and I think that's a good decision. So really the onus is on us as orthopedic surgeons to change our culture so that we can attract the best and brightest minds. And the one thing that I'm somewhat encouraged about is that the Canadian Orthopedic Association and the Canadian Orthopedic Foundation have recognized this, and they've set up a task force to examine what is going on within our community and and what changes we need to make. You know, overlying all this is sort of like an implied notion that female doctors and male doctors treat patients differently. Is that true? Is that, is that logically and factually grounded? Like, are, is your practice fundamentally different than, than a male orthopedic surgeon? Well, uh, yes, it is. 
and I think that not only is this just a personal belief that I have, but there are a number of studies out there that show that women spend more time with their patients, they give more education, they're not as aggressive surgically, not as quick with the knife as men. And it's not to say that there are not a lot of wonderful male surgeons out there. I mean, I've met them, but there have been studies that show that there's a different practice. And I think that the beauty of bringing more women into the profession will improve communication, but we can, women can also learn things from men. You know, this is not meant to put men down in any way, shape, or form. And I think that by becoming more diverse and becoming a, a more equal profession, men will benefit. They will be able to expand their identities and not just necessarily have to be that guy at work and maybe be able to go home and have dinner with their family and, and uh, spend more time as a father. And my son actually has gone into orthopedic surgery. He's uh, in his first year here in Toronto. And my dream is for him to be able to have a more well-rounded life as a male surgeon and be a great doctor, be a great father and, and friend. Well, that is a great goal. And I share that with you. Thank you so much for coming on the show today. Uh, what do you want to talk about next month? Well, I think that ankle sprains might be a, a little bit of a twist. <laughs> Pun intended. <laughs> That was Dr. Aaron Boyden. We have to take a short break, but when we return, we'll discuss whether pornography is actually healthy on the tonic. I'd like to give a shout out to our new sponsor, Omega Alpha. This company is 100% Canadian owned. Their team consists of allopathic and naturopathic doctors, nutritionists, researchers, and other scientific professionals, all led by their CEO, Dr. Gordon Chang. Formulations are created on their 40,000-square-foot facility located in Toronto. Omega Alpha uses only the highest quality ingredients to manufacture the most efficacious yet price-friendly nutraceuticals. For more information about Omega Alpha, visit OmegaAlphaInc.com. Jack Nathan Health offers Canadians convenient care with 74 multidisciplinary clinics located within Walmart stores. The largest ever Jack Nathan Health Medical Center is now open in Vaughan, Ontario at 8300 Highway 27. The new 8300 square foot clinic offers integrated services for the whole family, including family medicine, physiotherapy and chiropractic, chronic pain management, massage and a registered dietitian. There's also an on-site Dynacare blood laboratory plus same-day referrals, walk-in appointments and a new annual health assessment option. Jack Nathan Health is a one-stop shop for proactive health management. For more information, visit jacknathanhealth.com. You're listening to The Tonic on Sumer Radio. Carlyle Jansen is a sex therapist and founder of Good For Her, Toronto's premier sexuality store and workshop center. She's the author of two books, including Sex Yourself, and you can find her educational videos and TED Talk at carlylejansen.com. She can be contacted at carlyle at goodforher.com. Welcome back to the show. How are you? Hi, Jamie. I'm well, thanks. How are you? I'm doing very well. People don't realize this, but I find the pornography industry fascinating, both sociologically and even economically. It's a bellwether mm. for the rest of society is the way I see it. And it raises a lot of philosophical issues, uh, sure. namely whether or not it's, it's actually healthy for us, which is what we're going to discuss today. And I think it's timely because not too long ago, perhaps one of the largest purveyors of pornography, and that would be Pornhub, which is a Canadian company, got into some issues 
because there were allegations that the videos that were there, which are free for everybody to see, were non-consensual, involved minors and or people that weren't being paid and potentially even blackmailed through sexual relationships. Mm-hmm. So in that context, I thought it would be interesting today to sort of explore whether or not pornography is good, healthy, okay. I don't know how to frame it. What, right. what do you think? What's your take on this? So my take on it, and this comes from putting on erotic film festivals and therefore having talked with performers and producers, you know, there's there's two sides of it. There's, is it healthy for the consumer and is it healthy for the performer? Right. And so, you know, maybe we can start by talking about the performer because this is what the, the whole Pornhub issue was about, yeah. was is sex work inherently bad? And unfortunately, what happens is that people conflate sex work and trafficking, and they think that it's one and the same. And they also, they don't listen to sex workers. They very much patronize them and say, oh, you don't know what you're talking about, and you don't know that this is harmful for you. And they don't listen to the sex workers who say, you know what, trafficking is bad, and there are there are people who are trafficked, but the vast majority of us are doing this for a living, and we have very valid reasons for doing it, and it's a choice that we make, and please respect that choice. And I would say we're in a different place today than we were even 5, 10, 20 years earlier, because modern technology has sort of, in a perverse way, taken out that trafficker slash middleman. I mean, there are ways for people to earn a living as a sex worker without ever dealing with anybody else. I mean, it's, it's purely technological where the funds actually go directly to the performer. That's right. And certainly, you know, now OnlyFans is a website that a lot of performers are using because they connect directly with their fans. And yeah, they get everything that they produce. So you still do have, you know, directors, you still have producers. And some of the porn companies are very ethical. They pay their performers well. They give them choice in terms of what they want to do, who they want to perform with, what kinds of safer sex supplies they want to use. They also uh, will try to avoid stereotypes around fat people, around black or Asian or brown people, around older people, people with disabilities, so that everybody's portrayed in a positive light. And we don't have those stereotypes perpetuated so that more people can see themselves reflected and also so that the performers feel better about the work that they're doing, that they don't feel like they have to do things that feel racist to them or unethical to them in some other way. So there's people like um, Pink and White Productions who make pink label TV. They get porn from all kinds of ethically made filmmakers as well as independent producers, and they profit share with them. And so that is one sort of fair trade way of ensuring that people aren't, that the money that you spend on porn, if you spend money, goes to the performers and to people who are acting ethically rather than there are a lot of porn companies now who've been driven underground because everything's for free online. And so they're operating in Eastern Europe and places where they don't have good labor laws, where they're asking performers to do acts for a lot less money that are a lot more intense uh, that people would not normally have agreed to before. And they're using the desperation of people to take advantage of them. And this is very well lined out in a a movie called Pornocracy. And it actually features Pornhub. (laughs) 
one of the bad players in it. Well, yeah, I mean, if you if you tracked sort of the economics of porn, I mean, Pornhub basically what they did is how they got their start is they were pirating stuff that people were paying for, putting it up for free, and pretty much requiring the porn companies who were paying their their stars or their actors to be distributed essentially for free uh, and and pretty much turn the industry upside down. Um, And then, you know, once they did that and cornered the market, well, then everybody had to go through Pornhub in order to distribute to the masses. Yeah. Well, and I've talked to some porn performers who said, you know, they feel really good about what they do. The only times they felt violated is when they've seen their clips um, and their work for free on places like Pornhub, and that that's what's really made them feel degraded and feel bad about themselves. So yes, a lot of them now are working with places like Pornhub, and they will post some things for free, and they'll get either tips, or they will then direct them to their paid sites. Right. But now, of course, we have a problem with Visa and MasterCard. Yes. (laughs) So they have taken away, Visa, MasterCard, and Discovery have said you can no longer use our services, Pornhub, which was designed to try and get rid of child pornography and, of course, pornography in general, but we're not going to get rid of that. And so what's happened is that it's actually really impacted the performers who can't get those tips anymore, who have a hard time making income off it anymore. And the credit card companies are notorious for not being welcoming to people in the sex industry. So people who have sex stores and who operate um, adult businesses sometimes have a hard time getting accounts themselves. So it's really harming the performers in particular, whereas all of this was designed to protect them, but it's actually harming them because people aren't really talking to the performers themselves about what the solutions are. And you can see like a lot of them have migrated to social media where they're kind of doing little teases on Instagram or various other platforms in order to sort of, it's almost advertising, I guess, for for, yeah, for, for, for their OnlyFans site. And it's understandable because yeah. how else are you going to do it when everything's online? So if people, you know, we'll get to the downside of pornography in a second from a consumer perspective or the upside, depending on your perspective. Mm-hmm. But any resources that you could recommend if somebody was looking for, quote unquote, ethical porn? Yes. In Toronto, we have Spit, S-P-I-T, and Cherry Stems, who make their own. And Buy on local. my web, Yeah, that's right. <laughs> um, and on my website, goodforher.com, we have a link to Pink Label TV. So if you want to support positive working conditions for performers who are not coerced, that is a really great place to do it. And they're really, they're supportive. They give people access to promoting their work through them. So it's a win-win for everybody all around. Okay, so let's shift gears and discuss the consumer. Is porn bad for the consumers or is it, or can it be healthy? Well, I always say that any tool can be positive or negative, just like a hammer can be great for building, you know, furniture, but not if you want to harm someone. So it's really about excess and how you use it. So just to calm people's concerns, there's no link in studies between sexual assault or addiction in porn viewing, and that people who are moderate viewers of porn tend to have more satisfying sex lives and a healthier relationship to sex and their partners. So 
studies are showing it's okay. People who recognize that this is entertainment and that they don't allow porn to take over their lives so that they don't spend excess quantities of money on it, that they don't take breaks from work for extended periods of time to watch porn, right? So that they have a healthy approach to it, that it's one thing that they do and not all consuming. Yeah, you know, it would be the same thing for alcohol or, or gambling, you know, like the Even things exercise, that, yeah, right? Yeah, exactly. Like anything in moderation is probably okay for you. It's a yeah. question of how far you're prepared to take it, I guess. And I guess the other thing is whether or not it's instilling unrealistic expectations for somebody who may not be sophisticated or, you know, like what you see in porn, you know, cannot necessarily be duplicated by the average consumer, let's say, right? For sure. Yeah. If you're comparing yourself to what's going on in porn by thinking that your erection should last as long as all the edited scenes, that you should orgasm in certain ways or your partner should orgasm in certain ways or like certain kinds of sex or this is how it's done. You really need to see it as this is entertainment and this is one usually pretty narrow view of sex. Although, again, the ethical porn makers will show you a lot more variety in terms of what sex can look like. Okay. One last question, and and that is, you know, it's pretty clear from our our conversation, you don't think there's any uh, ethical issue with paying for porn, right? No, I think paying for porn is actually the ethical way to do it. I think that if you're going to consume it, if you're watching porn for free, it means that somebody has done that for free, and somebody else is likely profiting from it, whether it be ads or other modes that they use for earning money. So, if you're watching it for free, you're probably taking advantage of someone or somebody else is taking advantage of them. So if they have a link to paid content, go to their paid content. A collective site is a great place to go. Like I mentioned, Pink Label TV. But people don't have sex on screen for free, just like you don't go to work for free. Don't. Right? Nobody expects you to go and put in your however many hours a week for free. So we shouldn't be expecting porn performers to do the same thing. I think that makes a lot of sense. Thank you so much for coming on the show today. Always a pleasure. We're going to hear back from Carlisle Jansen next month. We have to take a short break, but we'll be right back on The Tonic. The Big Carrot is a worker-owned natural food market that's been committed to local, organic, non-GMO, and sustainable food systems since 1983. They're a one-stop shop offering produce, grocery, bulk, body care, and holistic dispensary. The juice and smoothie bars and kitchens serve up hundreds of healthy dishes and drinks daily. Building community is at the core of their vision, which they deliver through education, outreach, and giving. They want everyone to share in the goodness they offer. Visit their website for more information at thebigcarrot.ca. Hi, I'm Jamie Buss, and I'm not only the host of the Tonic Talk Show and podcast, I'm also the publisher of Tonic Magazine. Tonic's a health and wellness publication distributed with the Globe and Mail to each and every home subscriber in Toronto, west of Victoria Park. And it can be found free on racks at over 100 locations across the GTA. You can learn more about Tonic Magazine at tonictoronto.com. Hey, if you like the Tonic Talk Show, check out the new look of Tonic Magazine. This is The Tonic on Zoomer Radio. Gloria Chomko is a trained and certified home stager and specialist at easing one into a comfortable state of mind around their home. She feels that by clearing out clutter, we establish a space that allows us to relax and think things through with ease. She's also a Toronto real estate broker and founder of She Sells the City. 
Gloria works with professional single women, women who are going through a transition in life, such as a divorce, separation, or the passing of a partner. She helps them become savvy, confident buyers, sellers, and investors in real estate, and truly gives them the key to unlocking their next chapter in their life. Welcome to the show. How are you? I'm well, Jamie. Thank you for having me. I'm excited to be here. Yeah, you know, it's it's that time of year, and actually we're covering this because a listener asked for it, where people consider sort of getting out of the winter season and think of spring as a time to make a clean break and, and clean things up. So they want to do it but then they don't. And and I'm wondering why you think some people dread the spring cleaning process. So this is actually quite funny that we're talking about this because I actually just finished my spring cleaning this year. Oh, you're done already? Yeah, I did. I actually was ahead of the game. And I think it's just because of COVID and everything. You know, we're in our houses a lot more that it's really up in our face. And I think one of the reasons why we dread it is the amount of time that it takes to do it. And it can be very overwhelming because before we could actually get into that deep clean, we actually have to deal with all the clutter in the organizing. Right. Right. And that takes a lot of time. And then there's the thought of, well, once we do that, where do we dispose of these items? Right. Too. Yeah. And there's all, all these rules for what you can do and what you can't do, which we'll, which we'll come to later. Mm-hmm. What do you think the biggest challenges are to, to doing a spring cleaning? It's budgeting the time and finding the time to do it. You have to look at it as an appointment, so to speak. So it actually took me a full two weeks to properly do my home. And the way I did it, I basically put it down into my day timer and I blocked off time. So there were some days I was able to do three hours. Other days I was able to commit six hours to it. So it's really looking at it as an appointment, as any other appointment that's in your life and basically getting that down into your day timer. I also think one of the things that's a bit of a challenge too is that it's a lot of physical work. For sure. Right? Yep. And we kind of don't want to do that. (laughs) Yeah, I know. You would rather sit on the couch or, you know, as the weather gets nicer, right? It's simultaneous. Like the time. The, the, the time you think about doing it is also the time where, hey, it's really sunny out. Maybe I'll go for a walk. But Exactly. So, you know, it took you weeks, uh, you know, without giving mm-hmm. up too many details. What size house do you have? Like how many square feet? How many floors? Just to give people a so sense of So my house is three floors and it's just under 3,000 square feet. It's like 2,800 square feet. But and I went through every single closet, every single drawer, shelf, everything. Were you on your own or did you have some helpers? I did have a few helpers here and there. So it was usually me and somebody else that did it. I find that bribery works best. <laughs> I think right now we're a little bored, so we, it's, it's a great time to do it because it gives us something to do, right? right? Let me tell you something. It's a sad existence if you're looking forward to spring cleaning, but I hear you. I think, I think, <laughs> you, may, so, I think you may be right. It's so rewarding afterwards, though. Like, I yeah, literally true. feel like I got a new home. Okay. I was surprised. It was so fulfilling. Okay, so so you're here today to talk about coaching us through like how to do a good spring cleaning. So yeah. so what do we need to do in advance of the cleaning? What do you think? So one of the things we need to do, I mean, we talked about blocking off the time in our calendar. The other thing is we want to make sure that we have all the proper cleaning supplies mm-hmm. as well as the products. So you want to make sure that you have the right rags, your rags are in great condition, you know, taking a look at your mop, making sure there's not just like two little strands of fiber that are left to it or like the sponge is all ratty and tatty. Yep. You want to make sure that you have your vacuum bag stocked up um, because there's nothing worse than being in the middle of cleaning and realizing you're out of some sort of solution 
in or, you know, the mop just, it, it's no longer usable or that you ran out of a vacuum bag too. The other thing that we need to do before we actually start the cleaning, it's great to walk through each room with a notepad and just jot down not only that it needs to be cleaned, but maybe looking out of what minor little repairs need to be done. So, for example, let's look at the kitchen sink. Let's look at the sink in the washroom, the bathtub. Does it maybe need some recaulking yep. around the tub or around the sink? Also, our light fixtures, do they need some bulbs being replaced? Yep. So, because I think what happens is when you go and you do this really great thorough deep clean, the minute you walk in the room, you're instantly going to see the stuff that's just not perfect. Or the stuff that you've been actively ignoring, right? Exactly. It'll really highlight it and you, it'll just be so there that it's going to drive you nuts. Right. I think your vacuum bag, you know, idea is a good one. I would say like having something as simple as having the garbage bags and, and having your toolkit ready just in case you need to tighten some screws or do this or that is also Mm -hmm. something you should consider as well. Mm -hmm. Let's talk about organization and big items, right? Because it's one thing to get rid of the newspaper and the dirt and everything. But, you know, when some people are contemplating a spring cleaning, they're maybe getting rid of furniture or things like that. So Mm -hmm. what advice do you have with respect to that? So there are a couple really great apps that are out there. One of them is called Garage Sale. It's like a garage sale buy and sell app. Basically, what's good about this is that they actually go and they verify the identity of everybody that's on there and they go through a review process. So you're not, you know, there's always that safety component, especially with women when they're looking to get rid of items. Another really fantastic one is called Declutter. They've served over 4 million people worldwide. And this one's kind of neat because this deals a lot with CDs and DVDs. And basically, you scan the barcode on those items on your camera device, and it goes into the app and then instantly comes up with a price. For some really large items, there is an app that's called Buy, Sell Now. Mm -hmm. It's a classified type of listing, and you could sell anything on there from used cars, car parts, electronics, to even selling your home. Now, I have to tell you, as a realtor, I really suggest you not try to sell your home on your own, that you seek the professionals to do that. If you have clothing, this is a fantastic one. It's a very popular one. It's called Poshmark. Basically, you will be turning your closet into cash, and I love it. There's over 9,000 brands that are on there. It is great for women, children, men, even for your home items. Other great places for large items like furniture are consignment shops. Yep. And um, a lot of people think of consignment shops as only for clothing. That's not the case. You could do lots of lots of furniture consignments that are out there, too. I think the one thing about furniture is this. Even if it's in good condition, stuff like pianos and larger sofas and this and that, like you have an emotional attachment to it and you may think it's mm-hmm. worth a lot of money. You know, it may or may not be like, I don't know. I don't know how the listeners live, but, you know, like, don't just presume that because you spent a lot of money on it, that it is still worth a lot of money. Exactly. Uh, I know some of the consignment shops, you know, they they do take a significant percentage. I mean, but it's also great because then people aren't walking through your house, right? Like you you get rid of the furniture and then it either sells or it doesn't sell. Exactly. Uh, I think it's great to factor in how many years you had that item and how you enjoyed it for those many years and see the value in that right? and detach yourself from what the final cost is, what you're going to get from it. And then you could actually replace that item with something now that you truly do love. 
Right. And, and if you're doing it for the purpose of decluttering or cleaning, then really what you get for it in return really should only be a collateral issue and it shouldn't be a driving factor, right? Like exactly. if, you, if you've already decided that you want that couch out, well then get, mm-hmm. get the couch out. And I suppose, you know, if it doesn't necessarily have value, you know, you could always make yourself feel good by donating it because people do right. need furniture, right? They do. They do. Especially now. Exactly. All right. Mm-hmm. So now that we're sort of in the age of green, and, and this has sort of been the case for a while, we can't just throw things out, right? There are certain types nope. of of things that can't go into the garbage. And maybe it would be helpful to sort of discuss, given your experience, you know, what we should do with some of these items. So there actually is something called RecycleMyElectronics.ca. It's a Canada-wide uh, website. There's 2,500 locations across Canada. You enter in your postal code, and it allows you and tells you where is your local uh, depot near you. Mm-hmm. And you could take things like turpentine there, old gas tanks that you have, like propane tanks, chemicals, and items like that, and dispose that. And that's one fantastic way of doing that. Mm-hmm. Another thing is uh, through the city, if you contact your counselor, Generally, each neighborhood has something called Environmental Day. And you basically load up the car with the same type of items, electronics to TVs, you know, propane tanks, all that. And you can drop it off wherever it's scheduled. And that's generally done in the spring. But through Toronto.ca, and I love the name of this, it's called Toxic Taxi. And if you're someone who physically maybe doesn't have a car, you honestly just don't want to go wait in line and drop it off at a depot, you can call them, you fill out an online form and everything, and you make arrangements for the city to come to pick up the items. That's fantastic. So all yeah. of all of these apps and websites, we're gonna we're gonna provide links on the website so that people mm-hmm. can access them. So don't write to me, just go to the website and Gloria and I will make sure that the websites are all there for you to link to. Last question. And that is, are there any green resources that you would recommend? Yes. There's a couple really great cleaning products out there. One of them is called Dr. Time. You can find this on Amazon. It kills 99.99% of bacteria, fungi, and viruses. And that is a really great alternative um, to using more harsh chemicals. And it's made in Canada, and it's made with thyme oil. Another one that's really great is called Better Life Cleaner in Citrus Mint. And this one is actually a plant-based. It's derived from coconut and corn. You basically squirt it on your floor and you wipe it away. It uses essential oils such as grapefruit, peppermint, and bergamot. It smells amazing. It's child and pet friendly. It's great for hardwood floors, marble, laminate. For our laundry detergent, this is a really nice one. It's called Simply Clean Washing Soda. It's a formula that's over 30 years old before petrochemicals were introduced to washing our clothes. It's made of washing soda, borax, soap, flakes, and baking soda. And even the packaging is really, really great. It's it's made from like a brown paper bag. It's very vintage inspired, and that's quite lovely. And um, there's also DIYs. I mean, something just as simple as baking soda, vinegar, Castile soap, borax, and essential oils is something you could just whip up at home and use that to clean, which is quite nice. Fantastic. Well, thank you so much for coming on the show today. Oh, thank you for having me, Jamie. That was Gloria Chomko. Thanks to all my wonderful guests, Eldon Dahl, Dr. Aaron Boynton, Carlisle Jansen, and Gloria Chomko. And thank you all for listening to The Tonic. You can listen or download this episode as a podcast with full show notes, contact information for our guests, and links at thetonic.ca. To find out more about the show, you can always follow us at The Tonic Talk Show on Instagram or Facebook. For great articles written by amazing health and wellness writers, be sure to pick up your copy of Tonic Magazine. 
The March-April issue is now available free on racks at over 100 locations across the GTA and delivered with the Globe and Mail to every home subscriber in Toronto west of Victoria Park. Or you can visit our website at tonictoronto.com. If you're interested in providing feedback or suggesting topics for the show, you can email me at jamie at tonictoronto.com. Next week on the show, we'll discuss sleep, cleansing, and your digestive system, and the hottest new superfoods. Until then, this is Jamie Busson wishing you a healthy and happy week. This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show.